Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast series called The Edge. Um, today, we're very happy to have uh, Michelle Coombs on the call with us or on our podcast with us. Um, I know a little bit about you, Michelle, because obviously I stalked you a little bit uh, and we kind of met through LinkedIn because I read some of your articles. Um, but I guess for our listeners, if you can give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of how you got started and how you got to where you are today, I think that'd be great. Uh, hi, Jay. Thank you very much for the intro and for bringing me along on your podcast. So, yes, my background, I was back uh, back in the day. I was uh, originally a help desk analyst uh, for a company that used to support a lot of retail outlets. So like the old um, Iceland being q and those kind of people and uh, it was just literally the help desk but i used to find it quite boring in a way so i used to go down to the workshop and ask the guys if they'd got any bits of kit for me to repair so i used to go and get hands-on with those guys and uh, eventually went into the networking side and went for a network support role ended up doing um nt4 it was and exchange 55 if you can remember those it gives my age away a little bit there uh, but it was a desktop support kind of thing, desktops, uh, service support kind of thing. And um, yeah, it was all about the technical stuff back in those days. So I started off with the technical things and then eventually I learned some about process and uh, into the management side and started dealing with people a bit more. Um, but I love the technology. It was really, really, really fascinating. Took me all over the place, all over the world and ended up back in Birmingham at the end of the day. Uh, doing what I do now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to be honest, we must be a similar age because I kind of cut my teeth on a NT4 back in the day. Um, we we talk quite a lot on our podcast about diversity and inclusion and things like that. And it's I've certainly been in IT long enough to 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 know that there were not many females when I started out. So I've I've not asked you this before, even though we've spoken before, but I think it's it's a question that's worth asking because every training course I ever went on every time I ever went out and, and worked in the industry there were very few females so how did you find it in those initial days were you I guess I mean I'm, I'm generalizing here or assuming but I'm assuming there weren't that many females how was it for you good question <laughs> uh, right so for me it was a little bit different because um I was the product of a single father family, not a single mother family, a single father family with my brother. So there, were, there wasn't any females around. I'm trying to think how I can put that without it seeming like my dad had lots of girlfriends. There was no um, mother figure, as it were. So it was always my dad, uh, my dad and my brother. So I never had that female influence around. It was definitely my dad that took me into electronics and IT back in the day anyway. Um, the first thing I recall, the first time I recall any kind of being different in a way to most people on the courses was when I was at college and a robotics teacher threw a blackboard over my head and told me I was in the wrong classroom because home economics was down the corridor. Um, that was the first time I experienced anything. However, I would go as far as to say that uh, I'm, I'm having to cut you put me right on the spot with this one jay because i'm going to be a little bit controversial because they would usually say that there's a glass ceiling for women in tech um and at one point i used to believe that 
until I did my own research, I did a, a piece of research on the IT subculture uh, for my master's dissertation. And uh, I actually figured out that the barriers that women face are actually the same as what guys face. It's just more seen because there are smaller numbers of women in tech in the first place. So as people progress up the ladder, um, they perceive it to be a glass ceiling, whereas it's actually just a numbers game. And um, I take some time now and debunk the glass ceiling theory. Um, so, so apologies to any ladies out there that believe in the glass ceiling theory. It doesn't exist. No, I think it's a really interesting topic, and maybe it's one we we have you back on uh, in a future time, kind of to talk about in a bit more detail. But it's, I'm certainly seeing that there's more diversity in what we do today, and I think cyber's had a bit of a role to play in that. And maybe I'm going to be a little bit controversial to say that when I started out in IT, it was about hardware. It was building computers, taking bits apart getting your hands it was dirty. very geeky yeah mm. also getting blood on your hands from stupid cases and putting mm -hmm. ramen and stuff like that and i'm not sure that fitted too well with the people around me that were female versus male and and i think that's changing now but it wasn't very often that females would play with say meccano or lego and and i think like i said i think that's changing but maybe because it we grew into IT from doing that. I think maybe that had an effect and maybe because there's less of that happening now and you can kind of get into cyber and not necessarily know what's inside your Mac or your laptop or your desktop machine or even your server. I mean, they come now and they're much easier to, to build from a software point of view. Definitely. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, John. Um, what do you think? Do you do you kind of agree with what we're saying? Yeah, maybe back in the day where you know this was all men <laughs> doing their thing and and uh, you know playing as as we mentioned geeky. But I also think it's important, uh, and and I do want to ask the question: How do we get uh, more women into IT? Uh, because I certainly benefited from it. Um, I had the opportunity to hire. Uh, some females into both, uh, you know, from a um, entry level uh, and also from, a, you know, mid-level to upper level engineering roles. And it really benefited me as a manager because it was that different point of view that uh, helped me and, and helped me in my decision making about, you know, not only team dynamics, um, and how to work with people, but in terms of technology and direction and, and even, you know, working with vendors as well, it was, it was very beneficial in that respect, uh, to the point where, uh, one of the best teams I managed, uh, included, uh, you know, multiple females included people from, uh, you know, ethnic minorities, as well as LGBTQ, uh, folks, uh, that group just itself with those minds, the different points of view, um, that was probably the most effective team I had uh, in my career. And, and uh, it, I, I go back because it, it was a diversity of thought. And uh, that team did some amazing work, cutting edge work. Uh, we brought in some technologies that really uh, were pioneering. And uh, it was because of that team and, and just the ability to think a little differently about a problem. So, um, but I, I will ask the question, you know, how do we, how do we encourage more, females into this, uh, into IT and also into cyber. 
So from, from the piece of research that I did uh, back in the day, a lot of it is actually coming from the school age and encouraging uh, girls uh, or anybody really, anybody into tech from an early age. And I think as well that schools these days, I'm, I'm not convinced that they actually set kids up right in the first place. Because if you look at the, the computer topics that we have over here in the UK, it's very programmer oriented it's about it's about coding there's nothing about hardware and there's nothing about networking there's nothing about cyber security they'll probably do a, a, a little class where somebody comes in and gives a, a talk about um cyber or other areas of tech but it's very much coding led but it's very much driven from a school age and almost like breaking down those gender barriers of what's right for one can be right for somebody else as well. So because it's like boys would play with the boys things, you know, like when when it's the toys at Christmas, the boys would get boy toys and the girls would get girl toys. It could be for anybody. So I really think that schools need to look at the curriculum that they teach and also encourage it um, a, a, as a good career across any gender. Yeah, I think it's it's good for schools to start thinking. I think you you're definitely on to something there because um I look at my daughter's um schooling and it you're absolutely right. It's it's about programming, it's about coding and and that's that's great because uh in my opinion, um having that knowledge is is almost like a back when I was in school, you know, you learned Spanish or German or French or whatever it was uh as a language and I still think that's a good thing, but also you know, programming is is kind of that computer literacy. You you have to know it. You have to understand it, especially as as the workforce evolves over the next ten to twenty years. Um, but I, to your point, I think there's a need right now for schools to take up this concept called digital citizen citizenry, where um, they learn you know best practices. Um, it's good to have MFA. It's good to be a little skeptical when you get an email in your inbox and it, you know, says, "Hey, you know, download this uh, this item here and, and get a gift card uh, for your Roblox, whatever." Um, those are key things uh, as these these kids are brought up into the world and and having to deal with the internet. And um, I think some sort of curriculum on uh, digital citizenry and what it is and what it means is almost a requirement going forward as these, you know, these kids get out into the world and are starting to explore the internet because there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Absolutely. And, and I'd go as uh, one step further on that. That would be for every student, not just those in tech, because even when you're supporting, so if, if you're supporting IT in, um, in business afterwards, and if everybody's been through that, they'll understand the importance of having MFA. They'll understand the importance of not clicking a link, whether they're in finance, HR, marketing, um, facilities management, it doesn't matter which area of the business, that they need those basics for any role really these days. Yeah, and no, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think obviously when we were younger, there wasn't the internet. It didn't exist. The technology we have today didn't exist. Now everybody's got some form of phone that's connected to the internet. Their TVs are connected to the internet. I mean, a lot of teenagers nowadays don't watch what we class as terrestrial TV. They'll watch Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney, or any other streaming service. The world is a very different place. And whether you go into an IT or a cyber job, 
shouldn't be relevant to whether you need to know about ransomware and being scammed and all of those things. And I think it's something, and we we spoke to Chase Cunningham about this when we interviewed him for our for the Breaking Down Zero Trust series. And he we talked about the fact that his children used MFA for their games and they were aware of it. And and so my girlfriend's got a 19-year-old daughter and she's way better at a lot of the tech than we are. And it's crazy. Um, but let's let's pivot a little bit. Really, I got to know you from some of the articles you wrote, and I saw them come up on LinkedIn. And, and the one that kind of stood out to me the most was the one on, on superhero syndrome, yes. I think you called it, um, and, and about cyber burnout. So what what kind of led you to writing about that? It was right. The first, the first time I wrote about it, it was at the beginning of lockdown. And... Um, Although I saw it happening previously, that you would occasionally get the odd person uh, within an, it was an IT managed service provider, you'd get the odd person who would take on everything, that person that you could always go to, uh, but then take on everything. So all the additional hours, out of hours changes, weekend support, all of it. Um, you would always get those odd ones. But then when COVID hit and the pandemic, literally the world changed overnight for those guys they suddenly had all these people to help support as they had different business practices and everything else and i remember speaking to a number of people that were working on service desks who were just struggling they were constantly working they were tired they were exhausted they were so busy and i thought i need to write something that people can just refer to just to Give them a little bit of peace of mind that they're not alone, firstly. And secondly, how to spot when you're burning yourself out, but more importantly, how managers can spot that their team members are being burnt out and how they can handle it and, and, and how they can help support their staff through those periods of time. So I am going to put you on the spot a little bit, and I apologise. But what... If you are somebody that is suffering from burnout, what should, how can you spot it? And also a secondary question is, if you're someone's manager, how can you kind of spot people being burnt out? Because I've had to deal with noticing it within myself. So I have ways in which I can kind of balance my workload when I'm finding it a bit much. But I'm, it, I've been doing this for 30 plus years and I still don't always get it right. Sometimes I just hit a brick wall and I kind of fall over and I'm like, oh, I should have noticed that. And I've equally had members of staff that I've tried to keep an eye on. And, and it was easier when we were in an office and I knew them very well because you can sense if you know someone for a long time that they're a little bit different. You might not know it's burnout, but you can at least ask the question. But we live in a world now of a hybrid workforce where people don't necessarily get together very often and we're also living in a world where people come and go in jobs quite regularly so to reiterate mm -hmm. the questions are what would you need to know about yourself maybe to spot it and what if you were a manager what are you looking for so, so this is it is when it, it, within myself it's a little bit different because i've taken um a bunch of a whole heap of training to be able to deal with those kind of things effectively so it's less easy to describe it in myself now um but if i was to flip back to in the day so if i took myself back 10 15 years how i would spot it then would be like excessive tiredness the lack of interest in stuff uh, and things like that um even to the point where 
I, I wouldn't want to necessarily eat something that I'd like and those kind of things. Um, being able to spot it in others when you're working, uh, when you're in a manager role, it's things that people say, whether it's out of character, whether they um, burst with anger or something for the slightest thing that sets them off. Um, just different tells. I had a chap that used to work for me and, and he would fidget with the back of his head when he was uncomfortable. So being able to spot when somebody's self-soothing in a way uh, and just know it's really getting to know your people. And that's the thing is looking for those differences in behavior and attitudes and how they display out is, is the key thing. But that's, that's really hard over Zoom. I mean, uh, to Jay's point, when you're in an office, you can really see that person. And, and you know, we've mm -hmm. developed, humans have developed over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years yeah. in this social engagement where, you know, you're face to face. You, you can see the person, just not their face, their body. You understand, you know, their um, their tics mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, but uh, over Zoom, that's really difficult because what, I, what I've noticed since uh, COVID and this new method of, of working remote things have become more transactional. They're not absolutely human. And you're looking, sorry, I'm saying. Human, yeah, they're not that human interaction uh, that we're used to. Uh, I, I remember first going into COVID and there was a lot of stuff coming at me and it was amazing how many meetings I, I, I sat down at seven in the morning and I did not get up. I mean, just trying to go to the bathroom was was a challenge um, because basically the, the company I was working for lift and shifted their culture uh, that was very meeting oriented. Uh, but, you know, there was some of that human element in it and they lifted and shifted it into essentially Zoom. Oh, my God. It, it, mm -hmm. it, and it became extremely transactional to the point where I suffered extreme burnout over a period of months and and I had to leave my job just just to take care of myself. Yeah. So so in those instances where you can't physically see somebody you'd be looking for things like excessive mistakes or unusual mistakes. You'd be listening to the tone of voice, even just the tonality of the voice can give away um where people are stressed so they might start speaking from a higher pitch or something just slightly up those kind of things. Um yeah, uh, you can see the tonality as well in email when you're reading it doesn't read like the same person um so those kind of things where they're late they don't turn up on time um all of those things and it's a case of just getting on the phone and having a conversation with them and not taking the first answer because you don't want to tell people that you're you're stressed and burnt out so you might need to dig a little bit to to understand what's going on with the person but it's about conversation and not taking that first answer of, yeah, I'm fine. It's that really, how are you? And just ask the question. So as a leader, how, I mean, uh, yes, absolutely start to diagnose and understand uh, where that person's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but you also, as a leader, you've got to push forward. There's a, you know, you've got an agenda you need to hit, some goals, some objectives that you need to execute on. Um, how can you balance that? Any any words of advice to leaders out there that are, you know, noticing that their staff is beginning to burn out, but um, also, you know, looking up and seeing that, you know, the, the leaders above them also need to execute on their objectives and they're depending upon you and your team to make that happen. 
that that can sometimes be a really tough call because you you need to deliver. Um, it would be a case of actually I'd be considering if I've got a whole team that's burning out, I'd be looking at resourcing across that team, whether I've got the right uh, number of resources or the right training in place for them. And then I'd also be considering whether actually you might need to have that conversation upwards to say, hey, look, my team are burnt out or, or they're on the way to burning out. We need to take a foot off the gas whether we need to look at whether those targets are actually realistic in the first place and whether there's anything else that they could do as a team. Yeah, so I I know a number of my my ex-colleagues and ex-bosses listen to this podcast and and I've not known John that well, but I think he'll nod when I say this, but I'm quite an emotional person and, and quite a passionate person and I very much wear my heart on my sleeve. So I, I wake up every day wanting to do that absolute best I can. And if I feel that I can't do that, I load myself with pressure. So I've had conversations in the past with, and I don't like to call them managers, but the leaders I worked for, and they were all very good. But when I was young, I couldn't spot what I was doing to myself. And I put a lot more pressure on myself, as do I think a lot of other people, than anyone above me ever did. All of those leaders would be like, you need to take your foot off the gas. You need to do this. You need to do that. But if I can't bring my A game every day, then I start to question my own ability. And we, we spoke to Lisa Lorenzen earlier on in this year on in this year on the podcast. And, and she said very similar that she had to take a step back because she couldn't bring her A game anymore. And I think that's really difficult for people to deal with. And it's very difficult for people to acknowledge and I mean, I certainly know that when I changed jobs, I mean, I, I walked away from 25 years um, as a customer about running infrastructure teams. And I don't mean this to come across like arrogantly, but I was pretty good at it. I'd done it for a long period of time. And I wasn't aware of kind of how easy I found it. And easy is maybe the wrong word, but I could soak up the pressure because I've been asked the same question 10,000 times. I knew what the answer was, or I knew how to find the answer. And suddenly I'm in a job that's vastly different, doing something completely different. And for the first at least six months, I'd be like, what have I done? I don't know what I'm doing. And I definitely, and that's kind of how I've, I found you, in, to be honest, because a lot of the things you were writing about kind of resonated with how I was feeling and the things I know that me and John had talked about and the things that our guests come on the podcast and talked about. And I don't think it gets any easier the older you get. I mean, you you may be able to spot the signs and I do try and take a step back. But because of that pressure I put on myself to deliver every day, and certainly in a new job, it's really hard to sit down with, no matter how good or bad your leader is, it's really hard to sit down with them and go, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? And I think that's something that people need to start to learn to do. Um, and that really leads me on, I guess, to the, to the next article of yours that I read was on communication. Because communication for me is a, a wide topic. I mean, it can be communication inside your team. It can be communication up to your management team or down to the staff that work for you. But for me, it's a critical part in a business and something that during the pandemic I definitely set up one-to-ones with all my team. And then I also set up what we used to call coffee breaks 
with people that I knew within the company. And we would just have a 10 or 15 minute conversation like you would at the water cooler or at the coffee machine, just to put your arm around someone and say, are you doing okay? And I was very strict and said, I want you to put your video on. I want to see you because I've a lot of these people I knew. So how do you think communication kind of can be changed to make it better for people in, in companies? Oh, that 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 is a good question because immediately this topic we could probably spend hours days weeks months even on how you can make communication better in a company um it's about knowing the people that you're working with more so than anything because some people like big picture some people like detail uh, and knowing how people prefer to be communicated to will make it so much easier whether they are people that have a need to be spoken to directly so it's very very clear what's expected or whether they prefer to be hinted at so that they understood there's so many ways that you can communicate in differently within a business um and trying to and i did use the word trying there i'll come back to that and trying to adapt your style to include everybody can be less easy um so it's about knowing the people that you're communicating with and their preferred way of receiving information, if that makes sense. So so whenever I work with somebody new or when I would manage people, I always like to know how they like to be managed. Um, because if you over communicate and you check in with people too much, you micromanaging. If you don't check in with them enough, they think that you don't care. So it's about knowing people's preference for how you how they are managed and how they're communicated with. And then finding that balance to address most of them in one go or whether you have to do like two separate lots of communication is, is another way of doing it. Yeah. So I've used tools like um, Myers-Briggs or DISC mm -hmm. or, or tools like that, that I found very useful really because what it said about me, because there were, if, if somebody 10 years ago sat down with me and said, how do you want to be managed? How do you want to be communicated to? I wouldn't know. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you when you got it wrong because I'd either be emotional or I'd be angry or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But I didn't necessarily, I couldn't put my finger on how you needed to do it. So I remember taking my whole whole team away and we did a team building event where we kind of built stuff and, and did fun stuff. And we also did the Myers-Briggs. And I, and I read through it and I'm like, wow, this is pretty spot on. How have they got that from like 50 questions? But I find it really useful. And and really ever since then, anyone I've ever worked for, I've kind of, I've known, like yeah. these are my trigger things. Like this is what's going to upset me. This is what's going to help me. This is what's going to mentor me and coach me and, and get the best out of me. And I, and I think a lot of business don't necessarily do that. I mean, if I was 20 years old now and somebody said to me how do you need to be communicated to i'd be like i have no idea what you even mean by that well the, the other way that you could flip it is instead of asking the question directly like that it would be like jay if you and i were working on a project together would you prefer to have the big picture first or would you need the detail kind of thing and you can do it in question form like that so that you can easily identify whether you're big picture or detail or the other one is um do you need to be told you can do it as part of like over a, a, a cup of coffee while you're making a cup of coffee? Do you prefer to be hinted at or do you just like to be told directly? Now, some the problem comes, I think, because 
if you are not clear about your intention for asking these kind of questions um, in advance, you could be seen as like, why are they asking me this? Uh, and they will just go, oh, however you like to communicate with me, we'll be fine. So when you're nervous in an, in, in an interview, I've got all my letters jumbled up there. Um, so if you're nervous and in an interview, for example, and um, somebody says, um, how do you prefer to be communicated to a project? Do you like the detail or the big picture first? Um, they'll go, oh, however it comes, because they want to be seen to be pleasing people. Um, but that isn't going to help you as a manager. So usually what I would do is once I've got people on board, after three months, once they've settled in and they've got to know me a little bit more, I'll ask them the same kind of questions again and then just put it in a conversational format and like in a one-to-one and, and just say, look, I really want to get to know you a bit better and so I can manage you better and then go through a few questions with them. A lot of them are the questions that you'd ask in interview, but unless you know why you were asking these questions in the first place, you just think you've information gathering and it's a question you need to ask. So. Yeah, I, I also feel that this is something that we tend to do with newer teams. I'm like, when I was managing the support desk 20 odd years ago, when I was in my, in my mid twenties, it was encouraged for us to get to know each other. But actually, it wasn't long after that that the whole board, oh, I happened to be sat on the board at the time, and the whole board took took the Mars-Briggs, and we all got our funny colours, and I'm pretty sure it's like red, orange, green, and blue, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did it at board level, and it was really interesting because you can almost slot people doing certain careers into certain colors. It's because you, you more or less, your personality kind of dictates what job you do. So IT people quite often come back with either red, which I believe is quite like extroverted, quite passionate, which is what I am. Direct, I think I'm orange yeah. because I'm like a, a motivator. I think, I, I, I think they call it, but then you quite often get, I think it's blue. That's quite analytical. And funnily enough, a blue and a red, don't get on particularly well because they're like completely separate and and i certainly know with my girlfriend we are completely different colors and we we both did them independently and we shared them once and i'm like it taught me a hell of a lot on maybe how to deal with her a little better and for her to deal with me so john a a question for you have you ever done like a myers-briggs is it something that is done in the u.s oh yeah yeah myers-briggs is is one of those uh you know you've got a if you're in corporate, you you end up doing it at some point. Uh, Strength Finders is another one out there that we've done. Um, but the point I, I kind of wanted to get to is a lot of times these types of tests and and analysis happen when there's a breakdown in communication, and that's usually you know uh, a situation where time has passed and and either some decisions didn't mm-hmm. go well or some interactions weren't positive. Um, I think the key thing here is in this new world of hybrid work is how do you get to the point where you kind of shortcut this process and avoid the pain, the discomfort, uh, and uh, some of the challenges in communications and um, get to it out of the gate. Uh, it, it's not really something you can do in an interview uh, when you're you're hiring a person because to you know Michelle's point, you're going to get that pleasing answer. You know, uh, you know, do you like to be uh, hinted at or uh, just you know, here's the thing. Um, 
and uh, that person's going to you know give you the answer they think is going to be most likely to get them hired uh, so you know i think it's critical for leaders out there that are you know managing remote teams to consider how do you get this uh, this information out how do you figure out how to manage people not just wait for a, a bad interaction to happen but um be proactive about it and uh, consider you know early on figure out how that person likes to be managed likes to be communicated with understand them so you can get to the point where because burnout's going to happen uh, it, it's just it's just a matter of time and and uh people you know wanting to to do their best um you've got to figure out where the triggers are and uh, uh spot the trends and uh, get ahead of it uh so you've got to be proactive and and in the past a lot of this has been reactive mm -hmm. I think we've, funnily enough, you had another article that was all about how people are key to success. Um, yes. And I think what we've talked about here highlights that. I mean, we've talked about burnout. We've talked about a little bit of mental health. We've talked about the differences with people. And we've talked about how diversity can help in the workplace. But I, I've certainly seen, and you see it in the news a lot at the moment, that People are making layoffs all over the place. There are a lot of cuts, recessions coming along. And actually, I think it was Art that we spoke to, Art Ocon recently, that said he feels that companies should back employees a bit more. They should try and make other decisions rather than the, the first decision they make when it's about saving money is cut people because actually people are kind of what makes your business work. Now, that doesn't mean to say... I don't think companies sometimes have to cut people. I mean, there are some times when people are in a role that doesn't match or the company doesn't match. They're not being successful. But I think quite often they're not. People don't get the right necessarily training or right encouragement or they are getting burnt out and it's not being spotted or they're in a team where they don't quite fit. Mm -hmm. And companies quite often jump kind of that. Let's cut people. And and I've seen it in the past, and I've worked at companies where there's talk of a recession. It might be three or six or nine months away, and suddenly 10% of the workforce is gone. Then the recession doesn't pan out the way maybe as bad as everyone thought it was going to be. And then suddenly they go out and they contract all those people back, and they contract them back at two or three times the value mm -hmm. that they were paying them in advance, and the company's not in a better place. So I, I'd be interested to know how you think companies can deal with this situation better. And I know some of it's communication and some of it's putting people in the right jobs and all of that stuff. But what is it that you think companies could do to help with, with kind of retaining people instead of having to make these big decisions? If you're looking at the retaining of people, then I'd be looking across. If you consider you need the people, process and technology uh, for business success, really. If you were looking to save the people, that means you're going to be looking across the process and the technology pillars to see where you can make your efficiencies there. I'd be looking at processes, automation, uh, and where you can make those efficiencies. Um, I'd be looking at those areas rather than cutting people first. I think, um, I mean, I'm going to add an editorial comment here. I think this concept of cutting people, uh, you know, I was thinking about Art's comments and and he, you know, he went on and, and, and brought up some really good data points. But 
if we kind of think about the the process of cutting people, what does it harken back to? It harkens back to a manufacturing economy where you had a you know a, a factory, it produced a widget. Um, whether that widget you know oversold and and you had to cut back, what did you do? You cut the labor force out. We're in a different world now where um, knowledge and people are, you know, and essentially that factory. Uh, it's about ideas. It's about um, getting people to act effectively. And as well, um, there's there's extreme value in that because we've got to change the mindset and and get away from thinking about, uh, you know, work as a, as a factory is more as a human condition because humans, in a sense, if you lay someone off and they go elsewhere uh, in the past economy, they would look for a job within their locale. So if you know, you're in Portland, Oregon, your locale for work is essentially Portland, Oregon. 2020 flipped the script on that. And now if you're in Portland, Oregon, you can work for a company that's based out of New York City, or maybe it's based out of Israel, maybe it's based out of the UK. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, it's it's a matter of that talent um, finding the right home, the right place to work at. And uh, that's a different mindset. So, you know, companies going into this recession, whatever you want to call it, downturn, um, really need to be mindful of of making some of these choices because making those choices in the past, yeah, maybe it was correct and and you, you were able to save on the bottom line. But um, coming out of this, that talent is not going to be there. It's going to get uh, absorbed by another entity and uh, you're going to have to pay somebody, you know, maybe it's 10, 20 percent more for that same role, uh, whereas you could have had that person there the whole time. And that's not even counting the, the time for that person to actively be or actually be effective in their role. It generally takes six months for someone to understand the processes within the company, the cultural aspects of it, how to be effective. Um, that's a lot of time to waste. Yeah, for, for me, loyalty comes to mind um i i had the luxury of working for a japanese company maybe 20 years ago um and the japanese certainly back then were very loyal to their employees because their employees were very loyal to them you literally went to school you came out of school you got a job and you were there for your whole working life to the point where the senior management would be moved to the window so that they had a nice view because there was very little for them to do in their later careers, but the company kept them and they looked out of the window. Now, companies are still demanding loyalty from their employers, employees, sorry, but they're not necessarily giving it back in return. And I certainly, certainly when I was younger, like my parents' generation and, and their parents' generation, it was very similar. You got a job, you worked in that job forever. My dad did the same job the whole of his life. There were other opportunities he could have had, but he, he was paid well. They were very loyal to him. So he was loyal in return. The issue we have now is CISOs move around like every two years. It's a well-known statistic. If you're if your manager or your CISO or the leader at the top is moving around on a regular basis, why would anyone under them be loyal? And if you think that you're going to get cut every time there's a recession or every time there's a problem or every time the product doesn't quite make the money it needs to make, then you're going to take any job that comes up if it comes up and it's a little bit more. 
I mean, I certainly remember my my first job. I, I stayed in it for a long period of time because they were really good to me. So I earned less than I probably could have earned and all of those things. And, and that loyalty means that you learn an environment, you understand an environment, you learn a technology, things are easier and more efficient. I will look at the other side of the coin in regards to that and say you do need new talent in a business. You do need to shake things up now and again. But the way the Japanese companies used to deal with that would be they would swap people between companies like you do in football. You'd go on like an exchange system where the goalie goes from one club to another for a while. So you understand there would be that. And also they would recruit people in, in, the, in, in from college and from university, from school. They would bring the fresh ideas. And for me, loyalty is a, a big deal that I don't think companies have anymore. Um, but I've just looked down at the clock and we are quite quickly running out of time. It's been a... Okay, so one final question really, or one, one interesting one before we get onto the fun ones is, is if you were advising your 18-year-old self, if you could go back to when you were 18 and give yourself some advice, what would that advice be? Take a take take a risk every now and then, um, and and take a chance. If you get the opportunity to do something unusual, do it. Find opportunities where you can travel around the world and do what you enjoy. Those kind of things, I think, more so than anything. All comes down to having a bit of fun, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but always, always enjoy what you do because you're going to be a long time doing it. So I have a bit of a fun question to ask you on the back of that. I've had the luxury of traveling all over the world and asking a, a, and eating a lot of really good food. And food's a passion of mine, as no doubt you understand. What is the best meal you've had and where was it? A curry in Cape Town. I can't tell you the name of the restaurant. I can see it in my head. It was out by the side of the docks. Um, and it, they were actually closed. Um, I was going to go and do something with one of the, the boats and um, yeah, I, I knocked on this door and says, I know I'm early. I know you're not open yet, but my boat's leaving. I really need to be fed. And they fed me and it was the best curry I'd ever had. Okay. So John, I'll let you ask one as well. So um, favorite vacation. So if you had the ultimate vacation, uh, where would you go and what would you do? The ultimate vacation would be good question. There isn't anywhere that I haven't been that I really, really want to go. So rather than go somewhere I'd been to already, I'd probably say I'd do an all the way around the world trip picking off all of the sites in each country. Oh, see, that so would best, be fantastic. Best of the best. Yeah. I, I yeah. actually, before we wrap, I saw an article recently, and I think it was on LinkedIn, um, where somebody sold their house, and instead of renting a house, they just rented a apartment on a cruise liner, and it was cheaper than renting a house, and it was a, a US person, so I think it was someone like, Los Angeles, which isn't cheap, um, but it was cheaper to rent for three years a room on a boat. And I say a room, it was like a suite because it was all inclusive, all the food, go around the world several times. And that would be something I would love to do. I mean, we, we That's can my work retirement. hybrid now. 
Yeah, that's my retirement plan. So when I'm old and decrepit, um, rather than be shoved in an old farts home, I'm going to get my daughter to put me on a cruise ship. There's medical on there, everything you need, fed, watered, travel, anything happens that can throw me off the side of the boat and it'll all be good. Oh, you, it's just, just like Titanic. You can be like Rose and jump into the water. <laughs> exactly, <right>? yeah. <laughs> So I've got one final question before we close. And I know John's going to love this one, but we, we've just passed Christmas. Uh, we're in the new year. Um, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Oh yes, always. Always. So, John, you don't agree with that, just right? Just because it takes it takes place during Christmas or right around Christmas, it's now a Christmas movie. I mean... A it Christmas, was also released a Christmas movie, okay. I, and I, I and I saw it in the theaters back in the day. Um, I was just, I'm like everyone says it's a Christmas movie, and what Christmas spirit does it have? You, you're shooting a bunch of people and exploding buildings. It's uh, it's a summer blockbuster. That's what it is. But is it a good movie? It was fun. It was fun in the day. Yeah, I mean it. It brought together comedy and uh, it, you know it. Okay, let's just call it what it is. It was an early Marvel movie, but it's not. Yeah, a I, I agree. Okay, so to wrap, I'd like to really thank you, Michelle, for coming on. Um, I, I'd like to thank you for everything you do with all your posts on LinkedIn for trying to help people. I mean, it's very much what me and John are trying to do with this podcast series. We, we want to reach out and kind of put our arms around people and make sure people are okay. So we do appreciate that. And we'd also like you to come on again and do an episode two. Um, there's so much we can talk about. I mean, we kind of dived a little bit into some of the topics and, and we really only just covered the surface. Um, but I'd like you to come back on again if, you, if you'd if you be willing. Um, John, anything from you? No, this is insightful conversation. I, I think, you know, oftentimes a lot of these podcasts focus on IT, tech, SE, uh, SDN, SASE, you know, call it what it is, SSE. Um, and what they don't include is is this human side of of uh, it that you really need to pay attention to because as you go along in your career um burnout becomes a a, a challenge uh, there's a lot demanded of folks in the it industry whether that's an infrastructure or security and you need to always consider yourself where you are um what are your triggers and uh, take care of your mental health so this is this is a critical topic for for everyone Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.